that you guys have some background knowledge and kind of assume that in this. This is uh, in the return from the captivity period. It would fit historically between Ezra 6 and 7. Um, the story begins about 483. Um, so uh, I guess uh, a little over 50 years after they returned from captivity, except it's in the setting of those who had not returned from captivity. A lot of the Jews did not. This takes place uh, in one of the Persian capitals of Susa. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where, uh, where we're beginning uh, this. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say by way of introduction. Are there some things you want to say or ask about before we actually start reading and looking at what the text talks about? So is what you're saying about the date, I mean, we're seeing that this is the, for the very end of the Old Testament. Yes. Do we have a good approximate date for this? 483 okay. is when it begins. Now, it lasts over several years. Right. So, like Ezra returned in 458, Nehemiah returned in 445. Micah was probably written before the end of the 400s. Malachi, rather, was probably written before the end of the 400s. Right. So we think that Esther ends before Nehemiah returns. And before Ezra returns. Right. Yes. Yeah. We have pretty solid dates on Xerxes, which is Asuero. Bad Asuero's. Right. All right, uh, somebody want to read chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Now it took place in the days... I can see that. <laughs> now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, or Hazarus, the, the one who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as king, Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least, in the corner of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on the vague pavement of something, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were sold in gold, gold served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. And the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king and had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Okay. So, King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, whatever, that's the Hebrew of the Greek Xerxes. And that's what we would more commonly, from history, know him as. Xerxes reigned from about 485 to about 465. And he reigned over a very large area. Persia was really probably the biggest empire the world had known at that time. 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, which is huge. And uh, this is in Susa, one of the capitals. And uh, what does 
uh, Ahasuerus do in the third year of his reign here? And man, did he ever know how to throw a party. <laughs> wow. What, what do you see that's uh, impressive about his party? It lasted for 180 days. This is a six-month party. Can you imagine? <laughs> and that's the part for the nobles and the princes and the leaders. And uh, then the final seven days was special because... For all the people. For all the people in the capital city, everybody. So he's he's quite a lavish partier. What is he trying to do as he throws this party according to the text? Verse four. Sure. Yes. He's trying to do what's natural in some ways for most of us, trying to display what he's got. The riches of his royal glory, the splendor of his great majesty. We think, historically, this is on the eve of his big invasion of Greece, and perhaps he was trying to rally the support of the leaders to join him in this invasion. At least that's a reasonable theory. But whatever, he's trying to display uh, his glory and his greatness. And as you look at verses 6 and 7, you really see that he had a lot of splendor, a lot of luxury uh, to to display. He provided uh, abundant uh, alcohol, and he made a law that you could do what you wanted as far as drinking. <laughs> kind of funny that you have to, uh, uh, you know, sign an edict to make sure nobody's under compulsion, but everything in uh, Persian uh, rule, at least in the book of Esther, seemed to be by law. And uh, he wasn't the only person getting a banquet at this time. Who else did? Ashtar. Yeah, his wife, but apparently hers wasn't as impressive, at least uh, the text gives much less attention to her banquet. Now, in Esther, as you look at the book, the first two chapters are just giving the background and the setting. The real story begins in chapter 3. So we're just getting background so far uh, that's going to help us in the story. What are some comments and questions you might have about those first nine, nine verses? I'm going to get with dating some things. Persians had defeated Babylon. Yes. And Babylon was who had taken the Israelites captive. Judah, yes. Judah, right. Yes. The nation of Israel. So they had not yet released Israel. So this was during their 70 years of being taken captive. No, they had released Israel. Cyrus had sent the Israelites back home, but they didn't all go back. So these are the ones who just remained. Yes. Yes. They chose to do so. Yes. Before Ezra and Nehemiah. Yes. So Zerubbabel went back, but we still have two more ways going. Yes. Later. This is in between Ezra 6 and 7. Okay. Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. Okay. Because Cyrus decreed they could return in about 538. Oh, wow. So that's been, I mean, that's been quite a number of years. Yes. Okay. And Ezra will go back in 458. So it's about 20, starts about 25 years before Ezra goes back. Right. But it's 35 or 40 years since, or 40, 
50 years. 60, uh, 50, 60 years. Depending on the Okay. Yes. Okay. And how long, when was it that the Persians defeated the Babylonians? About 539. So when do they date the 70 years, like starting from which way? Well, that's a good question. Um, 70 years are close to it, doesn't quite get there, from the time the first captives went in, in about 605 or 606, until they came back in about 538. That would almost get to 70 years. There's also a 70-year period for the destruction of the temple, from the time the temple was destroyed until the time the temple rebuilding was finished, that's almost exact from 586 to down to about 516. So, and well, other questions. Sorry, the temple's rebuilt in 516. It, the, it was finished in 516. 516, 515 into there. Alright, the next section is quite an intriguing section. And, um, you know, one of the things you might think about as we read through this, when you look at the story as a whole, we don't need nearly all this detail to get the setting of the story. Um, so you might be thinking about some reasons why the author goes into this much detail about this. We're just going to kind of talk through it once we, we read this, and, and I'll, I'll point out a couple of things at least along that line. But, but verses 10 to 22. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded several people, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the time, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice, and were close to him several of those people, seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first, in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? And in the presence of the king and the princes, those mechumen said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are all in the in all the provinces provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. And this day the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard, the queen's, uh, heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written into the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti should come no more into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. 
And when the king's edict, which she, sh- and, and when the king's edict, which he shall make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. And this word pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mechuman proposed. So he sent letters to all the province, all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master of his own house, and the one who speaks the language of his own people. All right. So on the uh, last climactic day of the feast, when the king was feeling how. Mary, and he was Mary because? Mary with wine. A nice way of saying he was uh, inebriated. Um, what did he have done? They sent these seven eunuchs to go and get Queen Vashti. Yes, these seven eunuchs, kind of imagining them marching in step perhaps, going to fetch Queen Vashti for the banquet. Why did he want her to come? He was still showing off the royal... Uh, Riches. Ex- ex- exactly! Same verb used in verse 11 that was used in verse 4. He wanted her, her to display her beauty. He's going to bring the parade of goods to a climax by getting the king or the queen to show herself. What do you think about that? How they got the idea of a trophy wife. Yeah. Yeah, how's he looking at her? Yeah, exactly. Is it the very way a lot of men look at women today? As objects, as sort of just uh, you know, certain physical resources and not as a real person. And so, you know, she's one more object to show off before the admiring, you know, officials. In, in the province from his perspective. But things don't work out so well for King Ahasuerus. What happens? She won't come. Whoa! In one stroke, she ruins the whole effect of the parade. You know, this, this all-powerful empire suddenly encounters a snag. You know, she won't come. <laughs> Here's this all-powerful king ruling from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces who's displayed all of his riches and power and he's been disobeyed by his wife. <laughs> Can you imagine? Kind of reminds you of 1 Corinthians 1 where God chooses the weak things and despised things of the world, the shame the important people. You know, the queen manages to ruin everything for King Ahasuerus. So, so it's King Ahasuerus that ruled over 127 yes. provinces? Yes. He rules over everything but his wife. Showing who's the boss. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, how does he feel? Uh, a little sheepy. Angry. Uh, very angry. Whoa, this was not in the program. He's very upset about this. And immediately decides to do what? 
Make a wall about it. <laughs> Not even that. Yes! That is King's Xerxes for you. He never has a thought of his own. You will never see him make any decision on his own. He's got to consult with his wise men even to decide how to deal with a rebellious wife. And uh, so he calls them in. You know, what am I going to do? You know, what, what does the law say? And he's got these seven princes. I guess they're like seven cabinet members. And, uh, you know, he asks them for, for their advice. Well, they see this domestic incident as a national crisis. Why? What are they worried about happening? It's going to rub off and all the women are going to rebel against their husbands. They are worried that the news is going to spread. And when it spreads, that none of the women will obey their husbands. You know, I guess the dignity of the men of Persia was uh, so precarious that the actions of one woman is going to threaten the authority of all of them. You know, they're, they're horrified by this prospect. And um, so they recommend to King Ahasuerus that he issue a decree. Now, what are the provisions of the decree? She can't come before the king, which is what she did. <laughs> yeah. 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 Really smart. Yeah, they forbid her to do exactly what she refused to do. But he's just permanent now. If you ever wanted to come, she can't. You know? So she gets what she wants, not to be in the king's presence. And uh, she's also going to be replaced, of course. They're going to find someone more worthy than she. I suppose someone more submissive. And uh, that's not the only provision of this decree. What else are they going to do? Huh? What's what's going to happen with this decree? What's it's going to be publicized? Yes. Where? Everywhere. Throughout the entire empire. Most of the world. Yeah. So they're publishing the very news that they were afraid was going to spread. <laughs> you know, that's kind of counterproductive. Um, and and what does the edict tell everybody in the empire? The man's supposed to be the head of his house, I believe. Yes! Every man is to be the ruler in his own home. Like the king is in his. <laughs> you know, that's kind of ironic. And uh, he's really trying to uh, see to it in verse 20, that the men receive the honor and respect. Can you get that by decree? You know, it's kind of funny. People try that all the time. You know, there's bosses that try to just, you know, order their workers to respect them. Well, they may be able to order, you know, obedience, at least when they're looking. When their back is turned, they'll talk about them. You know, there are husbands who try to do that with their wives. You will obey me, and you will honor me, and, and, and you will look up to me. Well, maybe obey, but the respect, you don't get by an order. Or parents try to do that with their children. You can certainly discipline and should, but really the respect is going to be a function of your character, not of your ordering respect. So I think probably won't have the effect 
um, of producing the honor that they think. And it just kind of strikes you as what a way to run an empire, you know? Makes you, you know, I bet if we knew what was really going on, you know, in the overall, overall, overall office and things like that, we'd probably be horrified. <laughs> you know, I mean, it looks to me like these guys are are so, you know, worried about their uh, own, you know, authority in their homes that this is, you know, driving their decision making. And, uh, and so it's just kind of, it's kind of ironic. Now, it's one interesting feature of this is that the Persians are credited with pretty much developing our modern postal system. They had a, a famed uh, ability to publish things and to spread news. They used a series of horse communication, you know, horsemen kind of relay teams and apparently did that, you know, really well. So he revs up his extensive communication system to publish, you know, a nonsensical decree when it's all said and done. Comments and thoughts on all this? Why does it say that every man should be the one who speaks in the language of the own. Well, he's decreeing that the language of the husband is to be the language spoken in their, their home. Mm-hmm. Now, the Persians had an amalgamation of peoples, and they allowed the peoples to retain their own customs and their own language. But they're saying, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if a man who speaks one language marries a woman who speaks another, he's decreeing that the language spoken in the home is to be the language of the husband. Again, trying to give the, the honor and the glory to the husband. So you said they, they the Persians were the ones that came up with the postal system? Because of why? They just did. They did a good job with, you know, with, with you know, sending out messages. Yeah. At least that's what I've read about the word. wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> so it appears like the advisors were kind of looking out for themselves, mostly. Let's see if we can't get this in here to cover our own... Uh, Domestic situations. Yes, it looks to me like that. Yeah, it, look, it looks just really kind of like, can you really believe this is happening? You know, the queen won't come and display her beauty, and as a result of that, you know, we're going to publish an empire-wide decree that the husband is to be the head of his house. <laughs> now, when they say showing her beauty, does that mean like she's supposed to strip from them or something, or? know to what extent her beauty was to be displayed. Okay. Uh, you know, we're not told, but certainly that doesn't sound like a very um, dignified affair. Especially when you consider they're all drunk. Yeah, that would probably make them even less likely to look upon her as a woman, more as a thing. Well, our society makes laws that are just as ridiculous today, you know, if you really think about it. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't the message have been very clear if they'd executed her? You know, isn't, instead yeah. of making some crazy law like this. Yes. That, that reminds me of the time when, when George Bush was running for president. They wanted to make a, what was there, a, a law against uh, racial or hate crimes. Yeah. And they pointed out the one, the case in Texas where the guy, you know, killed the black guy or whatever. He says, we put the guy to death. What more could we have done? <laughs> you know, if we had had a hate crimes law, what would it? Have, you know, that message was more clear than any law on hate crime or anything like that. 
the same here. Why well, were executed? Then all the women in the in the province would have got the message. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It reminds me a little bit. Most of you are too young to remember this. Way too young. But when I was, uh, you know, in high school, um, you know, they found out that in the Nixon White House, they'd actually taped everything. They taped all the stuff that had gone on in the White House. I, for what reason? I have no idea. Uh, and, and, you know, somebody got hold of the tapes and started, you know, publishing. It was horrible. It's not like the war. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was associated with that. But they, they taped everything. And, and a lot of the tapes were leaked out. And, I mean, the language was terrible. All sorts of, you know, ethnic, you know, inappropriate humor and just all kinds of ridiculous stuff. Really kind of dirtied the whole image of the president to think of him, you know, I bet you anything, that's what happens most of the time. You know, you just think of somebody like that and expect a little bit more dignity. And that was just kind of disappointing to learn that. But but we're seeing kind of behind the scenes look at the, you know, Persian government and it doesn't seem very, you know, appealing. Of course, they never make a law like that today. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Other thoughts and comments on this chapter. So, uh, this, I'm sorry, I apologize. Uh, but King of Harris is also known as Cersei's? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Come on, all right. King of Harris. Ahasuerus. I've said it once, Asuero, because that's what it's in Portuguese. But uh, that's, uh, that's the Hebrew form of Xerxes. Xerxes. We know historically we'll know him as Xerxes from Greek. The Greek name. But the Hebrew name was Asuera. So they were spoken Greek at this point? Persia wouldn't have. I mean, a lot of people would have, but I mean the Persians had their own language. It's language now. But he had a Greek name. Well, you know, the historians that we learn about this period of history from Greek. are Greeks, like okay. Herodotus and people like that. Okay. So we learn about the history of this period mostly through Greek historians. Right. Did the Greeks win that battle? Yes. The, the, Soundly. That you that they think this was the banquet before. Yes. Then he went and well, more yes. got killed by. He, he didn't get killed. Well, I mean... <laughs> yeah, it was not... Sorry. His army got killed by him. Yeah. Yeah, they just suffered a disaster. Got, got smashed. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, they got smashed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, uh, trying to communicate in between the teenage generation. <laughs> Young adult generation, the older generation. Do you edit these recordings, or? Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> Watch what you say, Steve. And they go everywhere. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are some things you see in this. What we're going to look at later is how this chapter foreshadows later events. It also kind of shows, it will show us kind of what Esther will be up against a little later, and we'll look at that. And uh, certainly, we will eventually in the story see um, how these events contribute to the purpose of God in, in history. 
so those are some of the things I think we're going to be able to use this chapter for. I mean, basically, as far as just the main story, all we need to know is we need a new queen. <laughs> Uh, but but I think seeing this is really giving us more insight into the character of the king and of the government that's going to be helpful for us in understanding uh, some later things in the story. All right, anything else you want to say about chapter 1? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus has subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers to all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now, there's time passed here. Apparently, this humiliating and disastrous war with Greece has intervened. Uh, Xerxes launched a major invasion in 481, and his navy suffered a horrible defeat in 480, <coughs> and uh, his army in 479. And so this is apparently right after that, when he comes back home, uh, you know, thoroughly defeated, and probably starts, you know, missing his queen. But he's already issued an irrevocable decree that she can never again be in his presence. And so again, who comes on the scene almost immediately? <clears throat> yes! And what do they suggest? Making a queen. Yes. You know, it seems to me like the idea of finding a, another queen was a rather obvious idea. But Ahasuerus depends on other people even to supply his obvious ideas. And uh, so they say, let's, let's get another queen. And to do that, they suggest gathering up, rounding up all of the beautiful young ladies in the empire and bringing them into the harem and going, putting them through a beautifying process and sending them in each night to the uh, king for him to pick whoever he would like as his queen. What do you think about that? Some tough criteria for a wife. Yeah, that's true. I don't know, there's something that sort of seems sort of degrading and crass about that, don't you think? I mean, it's like Everybody in the empire serves the whim of the king. You know, whether they want to or not, evidently, all the beautiful young ladies in the empire are going to end up being concubines of King Xerxes. And uh, Herodotus actually tells us that each year, 500 young boys were gathered and castrated to serve in the Persian courts and be the keepers of the harem and whatever. So, I mean, basically, everybody serves whatever the desires are of, of the king are. Comments and thoughts? And this is even after he's lost the big battle? Yes. And they're still... I mean, yeah, he's still like king. He, he didn't seem like his status would have 
lost something. Yeah, I imagine that's a little why he's feeling down, but he still has the ability to uh, issue decrees that are semi-listened to, at least, in his empire. So Greece obviously didn't, like, take over Persia. No. Was Persia trying to take over Greece? They were invading. Xerxes' dad had lost a big battle to Greece, and Xerxes was trying to uh, retaliate, I think. Okay, so basically they just maintain that status quo. Yes, like, for now. Later, much later, Alexander the Great will conquer Persia, and Daniel 11 suggests that it was in retaliation for this. Okay. But that was 150 years later. Okay. Close to it. All right, five to seven. There was at the citadel in Susa, a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconahai, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. All right, we're introduced to two important characters in the story. Mordecai, now he has an important, uh, he's from an important family. Is this Saul's family? Yeah goes all the way back to Kish, Saul's father. So he's... What is Saul's brother? Ah, well, I don't know. This is probably a descendant. You know, these are not direct son-father relationships. Might not even be the same Shimei. Okay. But maybe. But at any rate, he's a Benjamite from the family that Saul came from. So that will be significant later on in the story. He is raising who? His niece. Yes. He is not his niece. His cousin. His cousin. Yeah. Who is orphaned. And so he takes her and raises her. And we find out she's a beautiful young lady. That which gives us already an idea of what's going to happen in this story. Comments and questions. What's going to happen? <laughs> Keep reading. Oh. There wasn't enough distinction to recognize that she was Jewish. I guess not. Because she's going to hide her, hide her identity. There would have been a lot of different people from a lot of different I think so. nations anyway. Yes, that is exactly right. Okay. Yes. It's not like everybody else was white and she was black or something like that. That's correct. And... I don't know for sure why Mordecai didn't want her to reveal her identity. We're going to find this out, but he tells her that, and she doesn't. Um, or that that was necessarily a good thing. Don't just assume that because it's Mordecai and Esther doing it, that it's good. I don't think we, so far, I don't know that on some of these characters we're necessarily intended to see good or bad. Uh, we can sort of evaluate each action according to, you know, other biblical principles. All right, 8 to 18. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to Susa the capital into the custody of Haggai, 
that Asher was taken to the king's palace. Well, oh, behold. <laughs> the custody of Haggai was in charge of the woman. Now, the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and made her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court to the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now, when the, when the turn of each young lady came to go into the king, Asuerus, after the, after the end of her twelve months under the regulations for the women, for the days of the beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of, oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. And the young lady would go in, 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 would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, into the custody of Shashashkahas, <laughs> the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go in to the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to, the, to King Ahasuerus, to his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashtai. Then the king gave, gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for all for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. Now, this is a long story basically to tell us what. She was made queen. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much what this is all about. It appears that when she comes into the, the king and spends the night, the king suspends the selection process right then and there and just chooses her as the queen. Uh, and she becomes then the queen of the empire that reigns from India to Ethiopia. It's a pretty significant thing. Uh, and he throws a banquet for her. It's kind of ironic that Vashti's fall and Esther's rise are both uh, both occurred a banquet, uh, but then there's banquets all over uh, this book. Um, I, I, I don't think this is by any means the main point of the book at all. I will, though, at least raise the question just so we can kind of, you know, maybe not take the wrong approach to the book, um, and that is. Do you see, would you see anything questionable about what Esther does here? Does she have a choice? Um, don't we always have a choice? Like Vashti? I mean, like if you're ordered to do something by the king. Um, like bow down to the image of gold that he made? 
Or, or else you'd be thrown in the fiery furnace. Like come before the king to the banquet. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as long as it didn't conflict with God's laws. Does this? You mean the, the selection process? Mm, well, like the hiding of her bat and going in and sleeping with the king. Yeah. Well, <laughs> she may have been in the harem. But I think there's something more significantly wrong with this. Not necessarily, maybe. <laughs> there's, there's something that I think we often overlook that is greatly wrong right here. The king that's supposed to multiply by. Well, that was. She didn't reveal that she was a Jew? No. Uh, that may be bad, also. That's what's intermarried with that. Absolutely. What's she doing marrying a pagan man? Isn't that a problem? Probably not by then. Well, what about in Ezra's day? What about in Nehemiah's day? Unless we're to think that they are to live by a different standard in Persia if, than when they went back. You know, I don't know. I mean, that, that seems like, you know, a you know, serious problem in that era. And, and I think, you know, the text doesn't make any big deal about that at all. It doesn't, doesn't say anything about it. Uh, I don't think really that's the point of the story at all. But I raise that question just to say this. I also don't think the point of the story is to necessarily recommend everything that Esther or Mordecai do. I don't think Esther or Mordecai are really the heroes of the story. Now, there are some good things they do from time to time, and I think we should recognize and see those as being good things. But I don't think the story is really written primarily to just make us admire Esther and Mordecai and think what a wonderful example they are. I hope my daughter grows up to be, you know, in the king's harem or married to a pagan king or whatever else. I think, I think there's, there's another point that's being made here. And uh, it's like almost everything else in the Bible. You know, are we meant to understand that everything Abraham did was right or everything David did was right? Or everything Moses did was right. Now some of the things they did were specifically condemned. Some of them weren't. And yet we see, by application of biblical principle, that they actually did some things wrong from time to time. Sometimes we can even see in the, in the narrative that it didn't work out well. Sometimes it didn't work out okay, but we realize it wasn't right. Um, so we're not, we're not necessarily supposed to just imitate everything an Esther does. So, help me understand, the harem would have meant that she was married to the king? Or a concubine. And that would have been okay? A commitment. Maybe. Doesn't seem very edifying. What is a harem? That's the uh, collection of the wives of the king, I guess. <laughs> you weren't necessarily married to him when you were in the harem. What were you? Marriage <laughs> property. Property. Well, they were tied into the king more than just a prostitute. They were considered to be wives or concubines once. Really? I didn't have them that close. Well, I mean, they stayed there and were taken care of? Yeah, I certainly would have thought they could have gone to anybody else. else. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, they wouldn't have been able to, you know, sleep around on the king. 
where the king can sleep around with whoever he wants. Yeah, absolutely. Which, of course, in the Old Testament was the way it was. The, the man could have multiple wives. You know, the woman could not have multiple husbands. You know, so there was a, you know, the, the biblical view of adultery was broader then than it is now. I mean, or allowed more then for a man than it did for a woman. So, you understand, I mean, concubines. So you go first in the harem and then become a concubine? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I don't know whether to call these con- the people in the harem a concubine or why. Okay. In other words, if the king turned them down, they were still his property. I think they were. I think they were. I don't think they went back home and got married to somebody else. I think they are still considered to be the women of the king. Well, that would be a sad life. Yes, wouldn't it, though? You'd be trapped. So you have your one night to spend with the king, and maybe, maybe he won't ever call for you by name again. Wow. You spend the rest of your life, perhaps, alone in the harem. That, 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 to me, that's what he's saying in this. It, it does show, again, how sad it is that this king just uses other human beings for his own desires. You know, I mean, again, the text doesn't make any kind of point about that. But I think as we read it with discernment and principles, we see, man, it's ridiculous. This couldn't have been good for morale among the youngest of the young men in the province. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he pretty well sucked up the uh, young ladies. Uh, the beautiful young ladies, yes. Beautiful young ladies. So. Only the ugly ones. Yeah, that's right. It'd be a blessing to be ugly. <laughs> you know, that was my other thing when you said what could she have done when she could have been really ugly when they came and looked. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've done her hair and whatever. Drilling her beard or... <laughs> Something like that. Thank <laughs> <laughs> right. Thoughts or comments through 18? she had done when under his care. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bethan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Hadron. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Alright, so Mordecai is sitting in the king's gate. I take that to mean he has some position in the government. Normally, uh, you know, civic affairs were handled in the king's gate, uh, in the city gate. But at any rate, he finds out about this plot by two of Ahasuerus' servants, a plot on their part, to assassinate the king. And what does Mordecai do when he finds out about this plot? Thanks to know. To Esther. Esther. And what does she do? 
informs the king that gives Mordecai the credit for Yes, and the king investigates, finds out it's true, hangs the two guys, and a record is uh, written in the Chronicles of the King, uh, in, and it, it tells what Mordecai had done for the king. This kind of reminds me of an event uh, in Bible history where there was uh, someone else who forgot for a long period of time a, a man who had really befriended him. Joseph. Yes. And who later remembered at a, a special time. This was a serious threat on the king. We know historically that 14 years later, Xerxes was the victim of a similar conspiracy by his servants. He died at the hand of his servants in, a, in, a, in an assassination. Uh, so, so this, this, I mean, very well could have done him in. It's a good thing Mordecai found out about it. Because it's just exactly right. Really upset the enemy of the province. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. Don't know that this is tied in necessarily with the harem, but <laughs> maybe, maybe it was. Let me get their hands on a couple of uh, the widows. All right. Comments or questions on chapter two? There was another one. Wasn't David? Mephibosheth or somebody? Yeah. Did something and wasn't honored, recognized for many years? Or? Well, he used to come and he made with Jonathan. That's right, because he was yeah. solitary. So it was a little later. <coughs> you don't know exactly why. He just kind of made the way up and decided that I should figure out if anybody's still alive in the family. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of how it's presented things in life. Alright, I'm inclined to go ahead and work on chapter 3, which is, I think, much more interesting. Can, uh, do we have enough life left to do that or not? Yeah. We're good with that? Chapter 3 really gets into the story. I really, uh, chapter 3 is quite intriguing. So, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid a homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai Mordecai's reasons would stand, for he had told them that he was Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down or paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained uh, to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Oh, the king here promotes a fellow to basically uh, vice-emperor, it looks to me like, Haman. Now, we know something about Haman's racial background. Because he was what? Agagite. Well, what's an Agagite? Those who... Uh, I mean... A, a, only a guy I know of is one. That's the same guy you're thinking of? Yes. 
Yeah. Yes. Supposed to kill the Amalekite Agag king. Yes. And so this guy was a descendant of the Amalekites, being an Agagite. How is that possible? Did we kill all of them? Well, actually, Saul didn't. <laughs> but Samuel finished him off. But I don't think that we're to understand that he killed all of the Amalekites. He didn't. Because there's several other times the Amalekites are mentioned. The Amalekites were nomadic groups. Now, I've wondered about this, and I don't know the answer to this. You know, what God told Saul was to utterly exterminate the Amalekites. Right. It looks to me like he got a group of them, one of the nomadic groups of the Amalekites, and didn't exterminate all of those. I'm wondering if... <laughs> I'm wondering if God intended for Saul to continue the process and to finish off all of these nomadic Amalekite groups, but when he didn't even, you know, do the right thing with the first one, that he, you know, that, that process was suspended. I don't know that for sure. Uh, but, but that does seem to be the way the Amalekites were. And so that there were succeeding Amalekites even after what Saul did. Now, the Amalekites, that's a very interesting story because when the Israelites left Egypt, Exodus 17, the first people in the world to attack and try to destroy God's newly formed nation were the Amalekites. In fact, the people were weak at the end, right? Absolutely. And in the very last verse of Exodus 17, God said, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. God essentially put Amalek under a curse. Now, King Ahasuerus commands everybody to bow down before Haman. Who does it? And he does it because, what does he say? He's a Jew. He's a Jew. And you're wondering, so, well, I think the point here is Mordecai, as a you know self-respecting, God-fearing Jew, won't bow down before Haman, an Amalekite from the cursed nation. I think this is a part of his carrying out this sanction God has put against Amalek. And remember. Mordecai is a descendant of Saul's family. And so they are natural antagonists. <laughs> and uh, do you have some comments or questions about what we're saying through verse 4? So what did he curse the Amalekites with? Well, just saying there'll be, you know, war against them from generation to generation. With the Israelites? Yeah, the God, or with the Lord. God will, God will punish them from generation to generation. So that is a, I mean, that is a possibility. We don't know whether Mordecai would bow down to King Ahasuerus. <coughs> we don't know if it was, we don't know if this was a, I, I mean, I'm not necessarily convinced that this was a right thing for Mordecai to do, to not bow down to him. It was the king's command. You know, whether that was... I don't know, I guess I'd have a little trouble saying that was God's law that you not to bow down to the Amalekites. You know, granted, the war between them doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. So, 
you know, doesn't give a whole lot of detail. Maybe Mordecai would just honor it and just not going to bow down. Could you bow down to another? Yes, I think you could. And I suspect from the story, you would assume Mordecai bows down to the king because he's eventually promoted to vice emperor. I doubt that the king would have promoted somebody who wouldn't bow down before him. There may even, I don't know if there's any specific passage that says Mordecai bowed to him, but he certainly gives respect and honor to him. Um, we We might not be able to affirm for sure that Mordecai doesn't bow because of of God's decree. But I think he doesn't bow because he's a Jew, at least. And as a Jew, he wouldn't bow before an Amalekite. I think I think that's a reasonable assumption. Uh, whether that was his fear of God or just his opposition to the Amalekites. Uh, I think it was because of who Haman was, and not because he just doesn't bow down to anybody. I always thought he just didn't bow down to him because he wasn't supposed to bow down to anybody. Yeah, I, I don't know of anything in the Bible that would indicate that. So you but. could bow down before the king? Sure. I, I, I can't think of any example at the moment which he has did, but I mean, didn't people bow down to the Israelite kings? Do we have any record of that? I'm suspecting we do. I'd have to check that. Okay. So it was just the idols that they couldn't bow down to. Right. Sure. They could bow down to the kings. Like Daniel didn't bow down to the right. idol. Right. Well, right. I check that even that you couldn't bow down to the king, but that's not the case. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I, that's just a mark of respect. It's not worship. You know, Haman's not being worshipped here. He's being honored. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. It seems like I've heard that reason he gets for this, that people will say, well, Mordecai didn't want to worship Haman. He wasn't going to worship a man, so that was why he bowed down. It seems like I've heard that. Yeah, that may be that. I mean, some people might say that. I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. It's just the idea that Haman sought to destroy all the Jews because of because Mordecai was a Jew. Not necessarily because they were Jews, therefore this is the problem. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of a little bit backdoorish coming into the same battle that we had. Not necessarily the reason that Mordecai didn't bow down, but this is magnifying it or re... Well, you see what I'm saying with that? I agree that Haman's reason for wanting to exterminate the Jews because Mordecai won't bow down to him, won't give him honor. And Mordecai let it be known it was because he was a Jew. So, Haman is so infuriated by not getting this honor. We'll exterminate the whole race. That'll solve that problem. We'll get this out by its root. Because Haman gave this as the reason. I mean, Mordecai, rather, gave this as the reason that he was a Jew. I think Haman really makes himself miserable in all of this. And, and Mordecai ends up, you know, pretty much robbing him of all the pleasure he could have gotten by the honor the king had given him because one man won't bow down to it. You know, Haman is half crazy. And, and you know, what do we call the, the attempt to exterminate a race? Genocide. This is attempted genocide. Now, could this really happen? I mean, would anybody ever be so wicked 
as to try to destroy a whole race. Hitler. Yes. Who tried it with the Jews? So I think Hitler is a modern day, you know, illustration of the fact that somebody can be that wicked. Was he an Aggie guy? <laughs> he must have been. <laughs> yeah. And so actually, ironically, again, I don't know that Haman has, you know, is thinking about the, you know, even the rivalry between the Jews and the Amalekites. I don't know. But ironically, he pretty much reverses for Samuel 15. You know, now he wants to exterminate the Jews, but God told Saul to exterminate the Amalekites. All right, questions or comments to the first six verses? All right, 7 to 11. In the first month, which is in the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, her, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Agar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all the other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest, interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took the signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also, to do with them as you please. All right. Haman has resolved to exterminate the Jews, but he's a superstitious guy. And, uh, you know, he wants to find the right time to do this. So he casts lots to find out which date the gods would choose as the lucky day to exterminate the Jews. He's in the first month. The lot falls on which month? The 12th. The last month of the year. Which is a wonderful thing for the Jews. They're going to have the maximum amount of time to prepare you know, if this had fallen on the next month, wow, this could have been a real, this could be even a worse problem. But it's given the Jew, giving the Jews 11 months to figure out something. And it reminds us that the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, Proverbs 16.33. I believe God has his hand in how this lot was cast. So, Haman comes before King Hasuerus. And says in verse 8, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all the other other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. What do you think about that? They've been here all this time. Yeah. Is he, is he telling the truth? No. Not completely. I mean, he says some things that are true. There's a people dispersed among the empire, but that they don't obey the laws of the king. Well, yeah, unless he means Mordecai not bowing down to him. But he's trying to represent this as they're antagonistic to the king. It's not in the best interest of the king to, to allow them to remain. 
And, and what significant thing does Haman omit? Who they are. You know, he doesn't even mention what race it is. Now, I think he's got a reason for that. When he alludes to them in vague terms, it makes them more anonymous, makes it more impersonal. It's a lot easier to kill an abstraction than a person. If he had said the Jews, as the earth might think of some Jews, he knows. But but saying it this way, you know, just sort of makes them like, well, there's these these people. And and even in verse nine, it says there's be if it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed. He doesn't even say, decree this king. But just let it be decreed. You know, I'll take care of the details. You just let this happen. And what does he offer? 10,000 pieces. Of? Silver. Talents. Yes. Which, the best we can tell, that'd be about about 300 tons of silver about two-thirds the annual tax revenue of the whole empire. It's a huge amount. About 300 tons of silver. I suspect he's going to get it from the Jews that are killed. Of course, you know, he could have gotten it from the Jews who were killed and used it for himself. But I think this shows the intensity of his hatred for Mordecai. He's willing to pay an incredible fortune to get the whole race wiped out. He said 300 tons? 300 tons of silver. But the king refused that, right? Well, yeah, like you always do. But he intends to have it. Who's going to get it? I think Haman's going to get it from the Jews when they're exterminated. Now, who's he going to give it to? I think he's going to give it to the king. He's going to put it in the king's treasuries. So those who carry on the king's business. To okay. put into the king's treasury. Yeah. So the uh, king's treasurer. Yeah, because the king had, it was a very expensive, failed campaign against Greece. I suspect the king needed revenue. This is probably an influential thing. So verse 11, when the king says the silver is yours, and the people also. Now what? Remember the bargaining that Abraham did with the sons of Heth about buying that cave? Mm-hmm. You know, he kept saying, oh, well, you know what? Uh, you know, yeah, a matter a matter worth blah blah blah. I want all that between me and you. I don't remember what he four hundred shekels, four hundred something or other. Mm-hmm. You know, and so acting like he didn't want it, but telling her the price at the same time. <laughs> you know, so I think the king may be you know politely refusing it, but throughout the story, this is treated as what was really going to happen. Uh, so I, I would say, if this is intended as a refusal, it's only a polite refusal. It's not a serious one. So Haman does that to get the king to agree to do it. Yes. Yes. And the king gives him the signet ring. Gives him the signet ring. Which means you write the law and put my signature on it. This is incredible. Ahasuerus is terrifying. So much power, so little thought invested in employing the power. Everybody's advisors this time. Well, yeah, I mean, come on. He doesn't even bother to ask what race he's consigning to annihilation. He just says, oh, here's the signet ring. Go ahead and do what you want to. It makes you wonder if we don't do the same thing with our soul. You know, I didn't even bother to think about what we're doing with it. 
or maybe handle, handing over the signet ring of our lives to the devil. But this is just this is just amazing, and 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 it's it's like he's almost he's almost oblivious to what he's doing because later on in the story he won't even remember when Esther mentions this, as if you know the engineering of genocide was such a common thing in his empire that it doesn't even strike him when Esther talks about her whole race is to be annihilated what the situation is. So it's just like, wow, you know, Hasegiris just doesn't connect on this one. But this is a this is a horrible thing, you know, for the Jewish rights. All right, comments and questions. Twelve to fifteen. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. It was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet. And letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews both young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict the issue was, uh, to be issued as law in every province was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa, the capital, and while the king and Haman, Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Alright, so what was the day on which this decree was published? The 13th day of the first month. The 13th day of the first month. What about that day? The 13th day of the first month. Three days after Passover. Friday the 13th. <laughs> you want to know? That's 7th day, 10th month. No, 7th day, 14th. First month, 14th day. <laughs> It's the day before Passover. Wait, the last yeah. thing you said is... Passover Eve! You know... What's that happen? Yeah, stockings were on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't bring a lot of those home. Well, yeah. The very... The, the, the day before the celebration of God delivering Israel from Egyptian destruction. Will God be able to save them this time from death to Persia? I think it's a significant timing of the delivery of this decree. And look at the decree in verse 13. Orders to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. <laughs> Not again. <laughs> <laughs> Destroying them doesn't work. Kill them. <laughs> uh, by all means, get them annihilated. And if that doesn't work, annihilate them. All the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. So, I mean, this is a decree to obliterate the, the Jews out of the entire empire from India to Ethiopia. What happens if this decree is executed? No Jews, and therefore... And therefore, 
know Jesus. This is a serious matter. And the whole city of Susan was in confusion and an uproar. I mean, wow, this is just this is unheard of. While the king and Haman
killed and taken into captivity. You know, he even allowed his people to be punished, but he still maintained that. So, yeah, and that's where we're going to go with this, is to see the unseen hand of God. You know, eventually we'll realize, how many times have we mentioned the name of God in this book? None. Never said. Never spoken. There's never a reference to worship, to prayer, to anything. And yet, it's so much like today. How often do you see God today? Never. On the other hand, if you're looking at this book with any kind of discernment and insight, you can't help but see the hand of God all over the place, and that's going to be even more true as we keep going. And so, you know, we don't see God today, but we sure do see the evidence of what he does. Just like here. Now, here's something for you to think about. Look at how this is the same story as chapter 1 all over again. Think about it. There is an independent-minded person who defies a leader. Vashti defies the king. Mordecai defies Haman. Off or do something. Um, both of them, both the king and Haman, are filled with wrath because of sensitive ego. An incident that involves two people escalates to something with empire wide proportions. An incident that involves just two people is escalated into something empire wide. Crisis. There is an effort in both to punish everyone in the same category all the women, all the Jews. And there's a decree sent out by the Persian Pony Express. PPE. <laughs> <laughs> Not the USPS. <laughs> so you really have chapter one sort of reiterated in chapter three in a different way. I think some really remarkable parallels. I think that's, among other things, part of the reason for chapter one. It's a foreshadowing of what will happen. Because really, chapter 3 is where the story starts. All we needed to know out of chapters 1 and 2 are that the king got a new queen and Mordecai saved the king's life. That's pretty well all we need to be the background for the story. Except when we all of what we, we read in chapters 1 and 2 really does give background and preparation in, in these ways for, for these chapters. All right, anything else you want to say about any of this through chapter 3? The king was able to find somebody very much like himself to point as his... He was indeed. ...right-hand man. Yep. Yep. Kind of ironic. Except he could act without advisors. Yeah, yeah, he would seem to have been a little more decisive than... uh,
passive errors. All right, why don't we uh, take a break here and we'll uh, work on this tomorrow or the next day. Long break. <laughs>